Hello, listeners. Before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to Reimagine Work, a podcast dedicated to questioning our modern conception of work and its role in our lives. I'm your host, Paul Millard, and I have conversations with philosophers, authors, creators, freelancers, and vagabonds who are trying to make sense of this question in their own lives. Join me while I try to navigate the emerging future of work. If you'd like to read more of my writing, explore this podcast, or find ways to work with me, you can go to think-boundless.com. Today, I'm talking with Uri Brahm, who is the publisher of the browser, also leading uh, the work for the organization there. And working with uh, the very well-known in the nerdy circles, Robert Cottrell, um, putting out just awesome content. I've been a reader of the browser for, I think, more than 10 years. I don't know exactly when it was founded, but I'm excited to talk to Uri about uh, living as a nomad for seven years, running the browser as a remote company nerding out about thing, some articles and essays we love, and we'll see where it goes. Welcome to the podcast, Ari. Amazing. Thank you so much. So you've been a location independent nomad for seven years. How did you first start on that path? Yeah, it's like most of my life, I started out by accident. Um, I after I finished university, I didn't have a job and I went through that phase of feeling completely um, inadequate because all my friends had gone to work at McKinsey. Uh, I think this might be a familiar uh, a familiar story. Um, and I wrote a book because I needed to say I was doing something rather than saying I uh, just sit on my couch all day. Um, and this was just when Kindle was getting started. So I self-published a popular intro to statistics um, and it took off a little bit, like enough that um, I was making enough money that at 22, I was like... This seems fine. I could go live in Thailand. And um, yeah, I kind of set off and started and then never stopped. Yeah. What did you learn about just internet economics and creating online that other people weren't really aware of at that time? So I think I was wrong in my assessment of it at the time. I thought at the time I'd gotten super lucky. It wasn't very advanced coding and I wasn't really a coder, but I, you know, was someone who was willing to read up online and kind of you know, go through this this hassle in order to get a book onto Kindle. Um, and I think I didn't realize how much that moat was the reason. I thought writing books on Kindle was a good idea, but it turns out just being one of the first people in some new area of technology that hasn't yet really been developed was a good idea. 
Um, so I think a few years later, when I was kind of encouraging people to write Kindle books, I kind of regret that because I think actually I was making a mistake. Like by that time, it maybe wasn't such a good idea to do it. It's interesting to follow some people that are successful online. It becomes hard to understand who was like the original creators on those platforms. Like you look at some people that are really successful on Instagram or YouTube and mm-hmm. the reality is they were like one of 10 people who were just posting stuff early on and blew up. And then people try to copy that success and they can't really do it because mm-hmm. they're joining when a hundred, a hundred thousand other people are doing it. Apparently early on in Twitter, some random engineer at Twitter picked six people to be recommended follows because there wasn't like enough activity <laughs> on the platform yet. One of those people became the president of the United States. Uh, let's oh. just say like there's a lot of path dependency and <laughs> <in> how <laughs> wow being I early did, off it. Yeah, I did not know that. Wow. So talk to me a bit about where you went from there um, and how you ended up at the browser. Yeah. So um, I spent a while as an author and um, yeah, wrote a couple more books. Um, I did various odd things. Uh, I made a board game uh, that I really enjoyed. That's kind of one of my favorite projects even though not the most um you know practical one um well and... let's dive into that i mean if it's oh, if cool. it's the most <laughs> see i'm always intrigued by when people are like this is the thing that fires me up like i want to hear uh, more about that like tell me about the board game like amazing what what was the pull that was like i have to create this so um uh, the game is called Person Do Thing. Uh, I came up with it with a couple of friends when we were living in Thailand uh, and talking about what the minimum number of words you would need to know in a language in order to communicate would be. Uh, so we created this game where, yeah, you, you have these 30 basic words. It, it's a bit like taboo backwards. Like you have this very restricted list of words you're allowed to use and you're trying to describe a concept by gluing together, you know, these very basic words. And the thing I love about it and the thing I love about game design is that it seems like one of the purest exercises in whether you can come up with a very simple set of rules and create really interesting emergent behavior. Um, and also in, in trying to guide people at a distance. So if you create a game, you have to put something in a box and then you're trying to create some kind of behavior among a group of strangers who might pick up this box, read the instructions, and then like hopefully have fun <laughs> thanks to something that you created. Um, and both of those just strike me as like these incredibly pure exercises that are just fascinating and weird and um, you get to see like how much little tweaks in the rules affect outcomes. Um, yeah, I think it's like super applicable to the rest of life, but only in board games do you really get that um, at its essence. Were there any things from creating that that emerged that you didn't expect? Like ahas in your own creative journey? Yeah, so I think I realized how much it's about theory of mind. So I think a lot of games like Taboo, it's really obvious to you while you're speaking what the answer is. And you're so frustrated. Why don't these people get it? It's really obvious. And to them, it's completely non-obvious. And I think I had an aha moment around that, around um, how hard it is to understand what other people are thinking and how hard it is to communicate what's in your head to someone else. Yeah, I love that. The reason I ask that is because so many people set out creating things, expecting some sort of goal or metric, but it's always the things you don't expect that emerge that actually keep that creative journey going. So it sounds like a common thread in your journey has always been writing. Like what is writing meant for you? Yeah, so I, I tend to think that there's two types of writers. There's people who love writing in and of itself, who just like love playing with words. And, and I do also really love words. Like I think 
words are cool. I think we could get agreement that words are cool. Um, but for me, it's more just like there's ideas that I wanted to express. Uh, you know, there's thoughts that I wanted to share. Um, and writing happened to be a really convenient medium to share them. But, you know, I feel like I could have ended up doing videos um, or podcasts or whatever the future might hold. Um, it was never the form so much that attracted me. It's just this is this incredibly um, convenient, accessible way to share ideas between minds. Are you yeah. are you on one side of that or the other or both? No, I I'm, I love the joy of finding out what I actually think. Hmm. It, writing is probably my favorite way to do that. I've I've been playing around a lot with videos and YouTube lately, but I find that creating videos is much more just technical, whereas mm. writing is almost entirely just grappling with this idea you think is in your head, and then you put it on the page and you're like, either I don't actually think that, or that's totally unfounded and I need to go deeper. And I love that pull and then that gap of not really knowing where you're going or how to say it. Um, yeah. And I mean, writing has really emerged for me as the thing that um, is the thing worth doing over and over mm. and over again, and probably for the rest of my life. You're in a world of uh, words and writing and working with someone like Robert Cottrell at the browser. Um, how, how did you end up working there? Yeah, so I was a huge browser fan, not as early as you, actually. You, you, you out, outrank me, precede me. <laughs> I don't know what the word is. Um, but I discovered the browser when I was in university, and I just thought it was the most incredible thing in the world. Uh, it was the first thing I ever paid for a subscription for. I was definitely one of those people who never, never thought to even pay for news or music or whatever. Um, and I was so excited about it that I wrote a really embarrassing in retrospect fanboy Facebook post where I was just trying to tell everyone I knew that they should subscribe to the browser. Uh, and a friend of my brother's um, knew someone who knew Robert and, um, yeah, was like, oh, Robert would love to hear this. I'll, <laughs> I'll send him your wow. post. Um, yeah. So one thing led to another. I did some, like, marketing um, for the browser early on. And then, yeah, sort of here I am now, now running the company. I was really excited to get your email reaching out. Um, I'm probably just as big of a fanboy of the browser. I started this group on Facebook in 2008 called Media Feast. I started it because I noticed that there was just an explosion of really good content. And it seemed most people were not paying attention to that or it was, it was still somewhat hard to find. Um, so I created this group of basically you have to share a long form post and then share a detailed description of like why it matters. So I was basically trying to create the browser for Amazing. myself. Um, and then the browser emerged and I would start every day just going to my browser, clicking the browser <laughs> and then saving a few articles to Instapaper and I can't even really qualitatively measure like what the impact it's probably been in my life. Like I've discovered so many like deep ideas and it's really helped me just think in a much more nuanced way about the the world. Um, so that's, that's my own wow. little anecdote. You can uh, pass that along to your team. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Robert will be so happy to hear that. He is the sweetest eccentric person and he is so happy when he, yeah, I think he doesn't realize how many people, you know, feel this way about it. Yeah, it's, um, 
And I started this, uh, I, my own like reads newsletter, which I ran for like two years and then I kind of got pulled towards something else. But, um, yeah, talk to me about finding good things to read. There's so much good content on the web now. Um, but it also seems like it's actually harder to find it now than it was 10 years ago because a lot of the news organizations have figured out this direct path to people is also a way to kind of hack people's brains and emotions and Mm -hmm. (laughs) things like that. So talk to me about maybe how that shifted in the last five years and how the browser thinks about its role. I feel that there is a lot of good content, but not that much great content and even less Mm. extraordinary content. And so I think a lot of our job is, I think, I think various people have tried to start selection, curation, recommendation newsletters, and a lot of them pick five interesting enough pieces, like pieces that are fine, but you don't read them and think, wow, like my life is different because I read that. I never would have thought of that. Um, We've definitely noticed the same shift you have over the last few years. Um, Robert just reads all day. I mean, he reads eight, 10, 12 hours a day. And I think partly that's the answer is just spend all your time reading and you'll be able to come across more things that are really extraordinary. Um, Yeah, I think he also just seems to have like a really special knack for having really good taste, figuring out, you know, what what things would interest everyone. What's, um, I think he's also just like an unusually... I guess sort of ego free person, if I can say that, like, I think a lot of people read and they partly funnel it through. um, What does this say about me? What does it say about the groups that I'm in? But Robert, as far as I can tell, obviously like, you know, no one, no one is truly completely this, but as far as I can tell, he just reads things. And it is this interesting, like with no relation to himself. How do you and your team think about like new versus older content? Because I think one of the realizations through the browser was that there are these easily readable, amazing things that were written a hundred years ago or 50 Mm -hmm. years ago. And they're starting to surface because people are publishing back catalogs and stuff. Um, So how do you guys think about that balance of new versus old? Absolutely. So this is our our only rules for what we publish are basically, is it interesting? Do we think it's good? And do we think it will be as interesting 10 years from now as it is today? Um, so yeah, we sort of noticed the same thing you noticed that there's amazing stuff that was written a long time ago. And then also there's things that are in the news that are good or interesting because they're current, but won't be interesting even two years from now or even six months from now, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, so I think I think there's a really important role in the world for reading things that will, writing like of lasting value, things that will still be interesting well into the future and that that's like an important model i'm not saying people shouldn't read the news but i think people should make space in their life for that kind of timeless writing i think there's some really something really important there i mean i think that's one of the biggest ahas for me is reading history is you just notice the same patterns a hundred years ago right or 300 years ago it's the same human emotions it's the same circumstances but a different environment one of my favorite essays is In Praise of Idleness by yeah. Bert- Bertrand Russell. Oh, Bertrand Russell. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's written almost 100 years ago, but it's all like the same question is still with us. And you can just picture him being like, what are you doing? You haven't solved it. <laughs> Bertrand Russell is deeply, deeply upsetting. No one person should be allowed to be that good at that many things. 
Yeah. I mean, he, he's just like, yeah. Yeah, his writing just channels so much delight and joy um, and still being like sharp and insightful at the same time. Yeah. And like the, the history of Western philosophy is extraordinary. Like if that, that was, if someone was like, I'm a popular philosophy writer, I just wrote a history of Western philosophy, I would say incredible what a life's work. And then to also do like mathematics and actual original philosophy I do not understand this person. Like, how is he real? Um, I'm such a Bertrand Russell fanboy. Someone once called me a Bertie bro. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. What are some of the older pieces of writing that you keep coming back to? Like, do you have a few pieces that you reread every year or mm-hmm. two? Yeah, I reread Derek Parfit's Reasons and Persons. Um, this is something I actually think this is quite an interesting thing overall. I, I am trying to, I think when you're religious, there are certain texts you read regularly. Like most religions include some amount of, we read this every day or we read this every week, or we read this once a year or whatever it might be. Um, and something that I think about sometimes is trying to create like a non-religious version of that. And so for a few years, once a year, I have read reasons and persons, uh, parts of reasons and persons. I can't finish it in a day. Um, and yeah, this is just like this incredible text about like personal identity and what it means to be a person and, you know, um, and something about coming back to it again and again, I think, um, is really impactful. Um, I mean, in these sort of cliche stereotypical ways, like you see how you've changed from year to year, like you get something new from it each time. Um, I need to do that. Is there, do you have any favorites you, you never stop reading? I think one I keep coming back to is William Dershowitz, uh, Solitude and Leadership. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a commencement essay in 2010 about just the the sacredness of solitude and how that relates to leadership in contrast to what we kind of like pop leadership, how we think about it, and then how friendship and just introspection uh, can be elements of that solitude. It, it I think it's very... It, aligning with like how I want to be. Hmm. Um, so it's kind of, it is kind of that religious, uh, spirit of kind of trying to like reorient and say, Hey, this is something I find valuable to orient towards. How can I remind myself? Plus the writing is just incredible. He's amazing. I, he's, he just gives you that sense of someone who is embedded in this, like elite university world and it's just watching these generations of students like make the same mistakes and like prioritize the wrong things and like he his essays are just these incredible like um I think screams makes them sound too aggressive but you know what I mean like these incredible like please no (laughs) stop doing this like you're yeah yeah you're missing the point you know well and I think he resonates deeper because he quit that world uh did he leave yeah well done So he left very shortly after, like, publishing his Disadvantages of an Elite Education piece. I didn't know that. Um, But you see a lot of people say these things, and then you look up and you're like, hmm, full-time job, tenured professor. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right, good good advice, but I'm not taking it serious. But he quit and is basically just writing now. which I, I think gives his stuff a lot more truth for me and resonance. So talk to me about how the browser operates. Uh, you guys have a pretty small team. 
Um, I think writing traditionally is something that I guess would be considered remote work before <laughs> remote work was a buzzword anyway. What are some of the lessons and shifts you guys have gone under in the last five years? Yeah, so um, we're a very small team. Uh, for a long time, it was two people. Uh, it was Robert editing and like someone on the management side. Um, in the last year, we've brought on like a number of additional people and, you know, we're, we're kind of like expanding slowly. Um, I think we, when you have two people with really clearly defined roles, so like Robert was always doing the editing and always did all the editing. And so me or my wonderful predecessor Duncan did like the management for a long time and, you know, like at various times it's been different setups. So, you know, uh, I'm, I'm glossing here, but um, I think it, it's kind of easier to be remote then. Um, and as we've grown, I think, learning how hard it is to coordinate different people where there isn't this like really clean cut. I do this, you do this. We don't really need to communicate, you know, day to day on what we're up to. Um, even if we like communicating day to day, what we're up to. Um, what have we learned from it? Um, I, a friend of mine said once that you should only really hire people where you don't know what they do all day and you don't worry about it. Um, and I really like that. I think the best, yeah, the best teams, the best things are when you you just like don't, you know, someone is doing their thing and you just trust that they're going to do wonderful things and you don't really think about it day to day. Um, yeah, that's a big lesson. Yeah, I think that's such a good lens to kind of break up this default mode, which I see many companies fall into, which is that, okay, we're a remote team or we've shifted to remote. Now we need to recreate the office which mm -hmm. is like, okay, install Slack. And now we need to have our coffee chat or like chats around the coffee machine scheduled as a meeting every day at 12. And it's like, mm -hmm. wait a second, we've shifted to a new paradigm, a new world, new opportunities and possibilities. And you're, you're going to create a much worse version of just bumping into somebody <laughs> at, the, uh -huh. at the coffee machine. I mean, have you picked up any of the like tactics from other remote companies in the past year? I mean, there's been a ton written about it. Yeah. Um, we've tried various things. So, so I basically, I really agree that when new technologies come in, it seems like always the first step is replicate the old setup in the new setup in this <laughs> weird, weird way. Apparently the first TV shows were just filming radio dramas they just had two people at microphones doing a radio drama and they filmed them and you think to yourself why that's worse than radio like you've just gone backwards yeah um and yeah i feel like we are in that stage for remote work obviously uh we've tried to implement other people's methodologies but most of them were overfitted for us like we are still a really small organization and i think there's always going to be this trade-off between formality and rigor and like how much do you make sure that everything is legible i think is, is legibility the word here there's some gosh uh james c scott or someone wrote about this for states yeah. how you go from like a try yeah do you know uh, can you can you explain this properly because i'm half remembering it from yeah seeing like a state yeah he yeah i mean yeah. He, t he talks about legibility which is that once you measure everything everything becomes super ordered and one of the examples he gives is trees in a forest so they started tracking the outcome of how much wood or yeah how much wood could you get from a tree and so they started optimizing around that and then they it backtracked all the way to the forest now look like this organized row of these perfectly planted trees, but then it actually destroyed the environment because they were just optimizing for statistics. So yeah, 
super legible and easy to track on a spreadsheet, but not actually what we, what we want. And I think a lot of people, um, in business, uh, do mix up, okay, we can track this and measure it with, is this actually, um, getting us an environment or conditions we want? I, I really feel that struggle right now because like there are all these benefits of legibility. Essentially, if you're a one-person business, you don't have to be legible at all. Everything happens inside your brain. You never have to write anything down. Yeah. Nothing has to be replicable. You understand the moving parts in some, you know, amorphous, nebulous way. Um, and as you grow, like you do need to make some things legible. Like, you know, you do need to have procedures or some way to hand things over or know what different people are responsible for so that if someone is, you know, has to take time off, someone else will take over their work, like all of these little things. Um, but somehow doing that without you know, um, doing the overly structured forest that 60 years later burns down completely is, um, yeah, I think that's a big challenge for us. Um, but it's something that it feels that a lot of the people writing about this are just giving us instructions for how to become very legible, but at a really high cost to the organization. And I think potentially, as you said, some danger to like the future of the organization. Yeah, I think the best I've seen is companies like Basecamp or Automatic. Yeah. They communicate the why behind things instead of saying here's the policy or procedure it's here's the decision i made that's not important but here's the why behind it yeah yeah now use your judgment right (laughs) and then they obsessively iterate on that document of like the why or the values or how they made the decision and i i think this is something that's key that's very hard for most people that are trained in business is communicating the why instead of the what it's so tricky because as you get more experienced at things, you just get better judgment, better discretion. Like you've seen more situations before. Um, and I think we sort of imagine that if we explain the theory of something, then everyone will be able to, you know, you say things should be done like this and then your team will understand it and then they'll do the right things in the right situations. But almost nothing worth doing is that easily theorizable and that clear. Um, so yeah, you, you basically have to keep getting into new situations and then trying to express, okay, here's what I would do in this situation here's why I would do it. Uh, next thing that comes up will be different, but hopefully eventually these like um, tacit principles will like become some kind of clear, clear instruction. Um, hopefully eventually. I wanted to ask you about distribution for the browser. So the browser was a website for a while and then there was a paywall to access older reads, I think beyond like a day. You were on Substack for a while. I think one of the early launch partners with Substack, and now it looks like you're on Ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk to me how you've thought about distribution, uh, why you joined Substack, and why you ended up moving to Ghost. Yeah, so um, we rolled our own tech for a long time. My phenomenal predecessor, Duncan, is also a coder and did business and tech and did things that I couldn't do and would not be able to maintain on my own. Um, and I, we would definitely there he, he'd integrated wordpress with stripe with mailchimp and he may even have done something before stripe came along to do his own payments it was just like such a bundle and yeah just as a matter of principle i thought um if someone is offering kind of these tools the like commodity tech to do something like newsletters um you ought to use it like why spend your time on the tech if you're not focused on tech um, it's, i don't have any like deep insights there um so stuff that came along a few years ago uh we we weren't with them when they launched, but we joined shortly afterwards. At the time, we were we doubled the number of paid subscribers overnight on the platform. 
Um, and we joined when they really didn't have very much. And it was all based on what we thought they were going to develop, what they were going to work towards. Um, as they've grown, it just sort of became clear it wasn't a very good fit. Um, Substack doesn't offer any flexibility or any um, sort of, for example, like you, as a publisher, you can't edit your own menus on Substack. And um, when I talked to their team about this, they were a bit like, well, we know how to make a menu better than you do. And I'm sure they're right. I mean, like I, you know, I have terrible taste and I'm a bad designer, but I should still get to put whatever I want in my menus. You know, this is just, um, it's just a matter of independence, I think. Um, yeah. So there's something really key there, I think, which is that we know how to make a better menu than you. And they may actually be right on a like optimize for revenue. But on a like, this is who we are, we want to be this kind of person to the people we care most about, it, mm -hmm. it's a different decision. So it sounds like you left. I love Ghost. Like, I just love John, hey. Uh, hey. the founder. He, the way he thinks about a, building a company, like, I, I definitely want to have him on this podcast sometime, but he's just, he's even more impressive. <laughs> He like gave up all ownership of his company, put it in a trust and it can like never be sold. And it's just like, wow, like wow. that, that's so cool. Um, so did you talk with them before you switch to them? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I actually had made a website on Ghost. So Ghost has been going for seven, eight right. years now. I'm not sure exactly. And I made a website with them pretty early on. They started as a web thing. And I think it was January or February this year, maybe that they started offering paid memberships. Um, so sort of, as soon as I saw that, I was like, great, if Ghost is now doing this, you know, like this is this like long time company that is like clearly sustainable. Like you said, they've kind of created this ridiculous model that makes it completely safe as a publisher. Like, you know, they're going to be there long into the future and you know that, you know, um, they kind of can't change the rules on you later on. Um, and so, yeah, we just sort of got in touch with them and, you know, like, like what we saw, like what we heard. Um, and yeah, it's sort of a really, I, I think it's a, better platform for us technically and it's 10 times cheaper than Substack so ultimately it was just like a very easy decision there's no yeah, it wasn't one of those big dilemmas what have you learned working with uh Robert Robert I've learned that Robert is the nicest person in the world um and just incredibly smart and thoughtful and that there's no topic like anything you bring up he's could just say oh yeah yeah no there's this interesting writer who talks about that um it's just like one of the most delightful humans um I think I've also learned the value of um, basically just knowing what you want and what your skills are. And a lot of people talk about this, but I, th I think like you mentioned about William Dershowitz, is that his yeah. name? Um, the same idea, he didn't want to run the business while doing the editing. Um, right. And he brought me in and said, look, like you run the business, like do, do your thing, you're in charge. Um, in a way that I think few people would have done with that degree of genuineness. Um, so yeah, um, obviously... I feel very flattered by that. And I feel very lucky to be running this company that I love. Um, but also it just seems like a really like smart decision to me. It's like too many people would have tried to keep both, you know, feet in both camps. I don't know. I don't know what the metaphor there is, but um, yeah, very inspiring, very inspiring human. Yeah. I just finished this book, The uh, the Great Works of Your Life. Have you read this book? I don't know this. Um, it's about, it's by Stephen Cope and he talks about, um, the work of founding, finding your dharma, which is like the work that brings you alive. And I, I think people confuse this often with the work that can be paid for. But his mindset is really like, how can you create the life conditions? And he gives all these interesting examples. Uh, 
to do the things you actually like need to do or are pulled to do. And it, it, if you started with, okay, what is employable? You probably wouldn't start with, okay, I want to read stuff 10 to 12 hours a day. <laughs> do you know how he originally started this? Was it just an email to friends? Was it something he had done informally? I guess he, he and his friends were talking about starting a publication in, I guess, what must have been 2007, if I'm doing the maths right. Um, and they originally talked about doing something that I guess uh, they, they'd come from The Economist and they were, were thinking of doing The Economist, but built for the internet age, which I think maybe would have turned out a bit like Vox, roughly. Um, and then the financial crisis happened and um, their financial backer suddenly didn't have as much finance to back. Um, and so Robert had to come up with a business model that was... Um, uh, you know, something that someone could do sitting in their pajamas in their bedroom. And he thought, you know what, there's already so much writing. He had, you know, like, I guess a year later than you, he had this insight. Um, there's so much writing already. Maybe someone who just reads and curates and selects is actually a better model than creating one more publication anyway. The world's probably better off. I wanted to ask you, though, tangentially, why don't you think there have really been competitors to compete directly with you? I think partly, so So we have the browser, which is for reading, and the listener, which is for podcasts. Um, and that's edited by this wonderful journalist called Caroline Crampton. Um, she was a New Statesman for a long time and started a podcast long before podcasts were cool. Um, and yeah, both Robert and Caroline just have extraordinary taste. I genuinely, obviously I'm biased and, you know, like you can take this what it's worth. But I, I think they both are just exceptional humans. Like I think... Um, it's like being a chef, you know, like I can cook dinner for my friends and they will be happy with it, but I could not open a restaurant. Um, and I think similarly, like many people can read things and find things that are interesting for a small group of people or, you know, um, I think it just takes like a really exceptional person to have, to find pieces that so many people will find interesting. Um, and then secondly, at risk of giving away our model, um, I think I think people misunderstand what we do a little bit. Like I think some people think of us as curators um, you know, that the selecting the links is the difficult bit. But I actually think it's the summaries that make that make the browser what it is. We we have this paragraph that is like really carefully written, takes a really long time to get it right, um, that tries to just like catch the essence of the piece. Um, and that both means that like you can read this one paragraph and have a much, much better idea of whether you want to read the article or not. Uh, but also that just reading the paragraph in itself is a delight. Like, I just love reading the browse newsletter. I love reading Robert's little praises. Um, even if I don't have time to read every article, you know, I just love reading his his writing as well. Yeah, I, I definitely resonate with that. It's, uh, I, I think what you guys are selling or putting out there is like a way of seeing the world through a lens of, delight and curiosity like it's really just a wow what a what an interesting world we live in check out yeah. check out these things and um it's a it's a nice balance to a lot of what you see out there um in media delight is one of my favorite words um, there's a book by Ross Gay called The Book of Delights, where he just spends a year noticing things that delight him. And that is that is just one of my all-time favorites. Um, just really, like, once you start paying attention to the world that way, I think it really changes you. I'll have to check that out. So the, br the browser has expanded. You have The Listener now, which curates podcasts. Uh, I think I saw you have The Viewer. Yeah, is that yeah, right? Um, and mm -hmm. that's video. Um, 
there's really been an explosion in all sorts of content. Are you thinking of moving into different areas, uh, other types of content, or is that really the focus, those three things right now? Uh, what would the other other types be? Tell me what we should be doing. I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I don't know. You, you could curate Twitter threads. <laughs> yeah, we could curate TikToks. Um, yeah. We could curate songs, maybe. It's, um, I'm open to doing, I mean, there's two. So we started the viewer with this thought that, oh, actually videos would also make sense. We found this amazing uh, 17-year-old, Abe Callard, uh, who just has grown up on YouTube and has exceptional taste in videos. Uh, so he does this weekly newsletter for us, the viewer. Um, I would, I've thought about expanding into other things, but there's, it would just have to be something where there was this really clear fit and a really amazing curator to do it. Um, I also sometimes wonder, like, could we do the browser for business, the browser for tech, maybe the browser for business and tech, but similarly, you just have to find the special person who has that skill. I think. What are like two or three essays written more than five years ago? that you think everyone should read? In Praise of Idleness, which you've already mentioned, and the entire book that it is in, I think that is like a really strong... Um, so I haven't I read think, the whole book. What's the name of the whole mm, book? I need to read um, that now. So I don't know if it was originally in a book, but there is a book called In Praise of Idleness. I think Anthony Gottlieb, who is also incredible, is the sort of editor collator there. Um, so he selected Bertrand Russell essays and put them together. Um, and yeah, like it's that same experience over and over. Uh, not every essay is incredible, but many of them you just think, was this written today? How is this not written today? He's got like these essays on economics and how like the industrial class is actually opposed in interest to the financial like elite and the fact that they're in a coalition is not just like some inevitability. There's just so much in that book that you think, wow, like how how is this person possible? Um, Susan Bryson um, is a professor um who uh got got sexually assaulted uh when she was in france and has written both an essay and a book about it that are just i don't know just like uh changed how i thought about trauma and resonated with a lot of experiences in my life in a way that yeah it's just like i i think everyone should read this um do you, do you know the name of that one the book is called aftermath and the essay might also be called aftermath um her ability to both genuinely like emotionally experience things, but also comment on them from the outside, like, like notice what is happening and talk about it in a, I don't know how to put this like a detached way without being detached from the experiences. I I've, I've seen very few people who are able to, to combine those. Um, Patrick McKenzie's essay on salary negotiation is something I end up sending to people very often. I think like many people would benefit from reading that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I, I think, I said three now, so maybe I'll I'll cut myself off there. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, I, oh my I mean, gosh, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if if people want more, they can just subscribe to the browser. And yes, get, yes, okay. that is what I should have said. Yes, uh, subscribe to the browser, you'll get this. While I'm doing this, people I admire, Ada Palmer is a professor of Renaissance history, I think, at U Chicago, and she has a blog called Exurbe, and. Uh, she has the most incredible pieces. Like her entire blog, as far as I'm concerned, is like a national treasure and should be like embalmed or engraved in stone or whatever we do with them. Um, the first piece of hers I found was actually about gelato. Uh, I found it through the browser. I think Robert found it. I read it in the browser. It's how to like get good gelato. And that has improved my life to no end. But uh, she also writes about, you know, like the Black Plague, uh, like medieval history, the Enlightenment. Um, 
Yeah, she 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 has this essay about like Francis Bacon inventing the nature of progress. Uh, she's got this essay about Beccaria writing about torture and how like this was one of the few times in history when an essay has like changed a society because he like basically convinced many uh, countries to stop like torturing people as a punishment. Um, Ada Palmer's ex survey, everything in it, everything in it that's older than five years ago, I could say with some confidence is probably an essay from more than five years ago that's worth reading. Thanks for listening to Reimagine Work. I'm having a ton of fun doing this podcast. One friend even reached out and said it's like a really professional coffee chat conversation from business school. I'm not sure what to make of that, but I'm going to put that one in the positive column for now. If you have feedback for me similar to that, I'd love to hear it. Shoot me a note, reach out, message me on Twitter. And if you want to support the podcast, you know how to do it. Go to iTunes. You can give it a rating. You can share it with a friend. And if you want to offer a financial contribution or gift, you can do that in the link in the podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good week. Hey, all. Thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can, of course, check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.